Welcome to the Go To Thrive Podcast, the place to inspire people in the workplace and go to thrive. Mary Jane Roy and Vivian Aqua want to make happiness the new norm and offer solutions to create higher engagement in the workplace. So our Go To Thrive podcast guest today is Stephen McGregor. Stephen, who hails from Scotland, is a global expert in executive health and performance with a PhD and master's degree in design thinking. He is the founder and CEO of the Leadership Academy of Barcelona and author of 11 books, including most recently Chief Wellbeing Officer, which he co-authored with Rory Simpson. Good morning, Stephen. Welcome to our podcast. Can you uh, tell our audience about who you are why you do what you do, and also maybe share something that people cannot see on your LinkedIn profile. Ha. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. Um, it's great to be a guest here on your podcast, Livy and Mary Jane. Um, I guess I wear different hats. You know, um, I, I'm a designer, uh, you know, so I have my background in design thinking, but I'm a designer and engineer and, and also an athlete. So all of those things which are kind of important not only to my professional career, but also my personal journey and my, and my passion um, kind of converged into the, the present reality for me, which is looking at um, the health and the humanity of, of people at work. So those different hats helped me to, to, I guess, just improve those aspects for people in a, in a busy workplace, in a busy life. And, uh, and the tricky part, people, it's not in my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. You know, I kind of, I don't know. I, I try to make quite a personal um, profile on social media. So I, I kind of put a lot of myself out there. I don't know. Maybe I come back to that and nothing comes into mind right now. Not a problem, Stephen. Not a problem. Can you share with us, this, this won't be, I'm sure, on your, on your LinkedIn profile, but share one of the favorite quotes that you have and why it resonates with you? Yeah, no, that's a good one. You know, over the years, I've always tried to um, get insight from quotes and, and maybe the less obvious places. Um, even going back to my PhD, I, I remember using quotes from Sherlock Holmes stories all the way through the different chapters of the thesis and, and then sustained executive performance. And then even in Chief Wellbeing Officer, I used quotes from movies. So, you know, maybe not the conventional side of looking at the really deep philosophical quotes, but I really think there's a lot in culture. And I guess maybe giving away my age, just having a big um, uh, like for 1980s music and film culture. So the quote that I, I really like comes from a movie from 1986, which is um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Mm. And in that movie, um, it's just a whole, you know, madcap day of, of Ferris, you know, taking a day off school and just having his best life. And his girlfriend um, says to him at one point in the movie, uh, you knew what you were doing when you woke up this morning, didn't you? Um, and I just love that because it's about intention and mindset. Because in the movie, nothing is planned. Everything is very kind of last moment, but it's... The quote speaks to the fact that he, he woke up that day, I guess, with a real intention on, on, on having the, the best day. And whatever unfolded, unfolded. Um, so he knew what he was doing, but just in a very loose way. And I think a lot of what we try and do in the lab 
is, is a similar kind of fashion because in business and in well-being, we have this long-term view, um, what we want from life and our purpose and all these different things. But we often overlook the daily habits. And these are the quick wins which get us to the bigger picture. So a lot of our workshops, we actually ask people to think about, you know, what do you do in the first 10 minutes of your day? What do you do in the last 10 minutes? Um, you know, how do you travel to work? And, and looking at a lot of these small things um, and, and just having that intention and that mindset. So that, that's the quote that I'd, I'd like to bring there. Thank you. And also thank you for sharing your, your, your thought behind this quote, because I know this movie, so I'm also one of the 80s babies, but it's really cool how you shared it and how you explained why we need to, we need to think about our, our habits and also have that mindset where we can change in just in the 10 minutes that we can do something for ourselves. Yeah. And Stephen, while you were, while you were sharing this, I, and my thoughts went in a different direction, actually. I thought, from based on based on the the line you quoted i wouldn't have anticipated but when you shared the story behind it i thought well it's a question or it's what you could take into each day to be really flexible to be really a, a, no matter what comes on your path that you're going to be prepared for it and that you might not be able to plan for it but you can be prepared for it so yeah that was was the direction my mind took as you were as you were sharing that thank mm -hmm. you can you also share your thoughts on some of the common denominators between elite sports people and elite business executives? No, it's a good question. You know, a lot of my entry point into looking at health and well-being and performance at work came from my experience uh, as an athlete myself. You know, when I was at Stanford as a visiting researcher, I was training with uh, athletes who were part of the U.S. Olympic team and track. And then I lived in Girona, uh, north of Barcelona. I was training with Tour de France cyclists and a lot of Lance Armstrong's US postal team at the, at the time. So getting a close-up view of these sportsmen and women, uh, and even a lot of my peers went on to become full-time Ironmen and women and, and made a career in that. So I've often thought about this over the years, and I think it often comes down to a performance mindset. You know, they can come from very different angles you know even if you look at sport as a career it's a very short career you know maybe maximum 10 years in in different sports at the very top level uh, and in business it's a lot it's a lot longer right and and so there are many differences but i think that the, the common denominator as you ask for is that performance mindset they know when is the critical time to perform and and from athletes that could be you know, once every four years. And I, and I often use the case for track cycling and many of the Great Britain team in track cycling, you know, in between the Olympic Games, they would experiment and try different things and different tactics. And it might mean that they lose the race. But when it mattered at the Olympic Games, they knew that that's when they had to perform. So it's being on at the right time. And I think in business, yeah, you need to be consistent, absolutely. You need to be performing day in, day out, and that's a very tough pressure to have. But they also are aware, business people, um, of that performance mindset. When do they really need to execute? And sometimes that means they need to take a step back one day, or they need to take a step back uh, one week, or at different parts of the, the year, maybe you know, uh, reflect, rehearse, experiment, try something different. 
So execution is the key thing between both, I think. Mm-hmm. Which is a, it's a scary thing, I think, for business executives to take a step back or to pause or to reflect for a time, right? Do you see challenges there? Yeah, I think it's, it's part of the development of a professional because I think when we go into business and I, spe- and I think a lot of young people, they have fierce ambition, they have lots of energy uh, and they just go 110 miles per hour, right? And, and they don't stop. And I think part of being a seasoned professional uh, or an effective executive is learning to take a step back, is learning to reflect on practice and have, let's say, a bit more of that inner dialogue. Uh, And if you don't have that inner dialogue, if you don't take a step back and recover effectively, I think, you know, that that, that's going to, that's really going to have an impact, a detrimental impact sooner or later. And, and Stephen, this is one of the most important things I think I've seen in the work that I do in the corporate world. And that is that most of the leaders are not taking that time to recover, time for themselves. And whereas an athlete knows they can't perform 100% and 100% of the time, the the recovery has to be built in. And luckily they have coaches to help them to do that, uh, at least at the top, uh, top levels. But leaders, most of them don't have that and they just are not aware of how important it is to take that time for themselves. Absolutely. You know, I think there is more attention now in the general space of well-being, but also realizing that it's not just well-being to be well on its own, but well-being in order to aid performance, right? And I think a lot of uh, companies, uh, you know, like McKinsey, for example, the program is, is called peak performance, right? So it's about using things like sleep, using things like other recovery mechanisms in order to, to aid that performance. So I think there's a, there's a performance case there, uh, but we, we can't just keep it on the performance level. We have to think the longer term, um, what is the kind of uh, the ways in which we can thrive at work. So th- thriving, I think, is part of the performance case, but it's also part of, of being happy. And I think just the, 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 another thought on the, the link between sports and business, you know, as you said, as we develop as a sportsman or woman, we get real support, right? We have a real um, coaching network. We have different people around us who do different things. But in business, it's often the opposite, right? You get, you become a new graduate, right? Or you become on a, on a fast track program or a high potential program. You have a mentor, you have a coach, you get the support. But as you move through the organization, you get less and less of that support you get people who do things for you, but you get less people who give you honest feedback on how you're doing your job, right? So, and it becomes a fear factor, right? You know, how do you tell the CEO, give them an honest appraisal on what they're doing or how they're doing it? And, and that means that, you know, these guys end up burning out or they get fired, right? So they don't get that feedback. So it's like the opposite to sport in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, Stephen, em- employees and their leaders, I, I read this in, in, in your book and I found it a really interesting concept. Uh, employees and leaders, they need to find ways of fitting life, business, health, emails, and more into 24 hours. Tell us about The Hateful Eight. I really enjoyed reading this. 
Yeah, so that was a term. Um, Actually, I, no, and I, I just want to interrupt, Stephen. It wasn't. I didn't read it. I saw this in a uh, in a YouTube video that I watched of you, in a in a chat. Yeah, that was it. That's right. It was a it was a keynote uh, a couple of years ago in the Czech Republic, and um, yeah, they, they you know they gave me kind of carte blanche on that theme, and I remember the Quentin Tarantino movie. Uh, the Hateful Eight was out about the same time. So that just kind of popped into my head because I had been doing research for the Sustaining Executive Performance book on the origins of the Industrial Revolution uh, and a lot of the factor of, you know, fitting all of these, you know, work, uh, life and, and rest into 24 hours. And as soon as the Industrial Revolution, uh, you know, really got into gear, there was this sun up to sun down dynamic. So you were just working as many hours as you could. And Robert Owen in the new Lanark Mills in central Scotland uh, was one of the first to really start thinking on, okay, what's the balance here? So the new Lanark Mills, he was the first to kind of give welfare programs. It was even the first uh, nursery school in the world was, was developed there and a real uh, kind of enlightened level of education for the kids at that time, which was Victorian era Britain. Um, so there was a lot of these initiatives to really look after people. And then Ford Motor Company, a little while later, was the first to really take that in a big kind of company level, and they limited the working day to 10 hours at that time. So anyway, the triple eight was something I had in my mind, right? Because that was the, the kind of romantic notion from Robert Owen, that you work eight hours, you have eight hours leisure to live your life, uh, and you have eight hours rest, which as we all know, between seven and eight hours is what we need in terms of sleeping time. But then what I started to think about was that because of technology, in those eight hours living, which is traditionally outside of the office, and eight hours sleeping, you get potentially work requests, right? You get people trying to contact you, you get emails, you get your boss on the phone, and work invariably is coming in to the rest of these other 16 hours. But what happens is that in that first eight-hour block, the traditional work block, the nine-to-five or whatever you want to call it, work is exclusive. We don't get that same flexibility in the other way. So you don't get the same flexibility for rest or for live, living or leisure within that traditional work block. So I call that a hateful eight, which, which you know, transpired that many people, they resent that that working block because they don't get the same flexibility in the way that work comes into the rest of their 24 hours. Oh, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And Stephen, how can people become their best version of themselves? So I think it, it goes back to a previous point, uh, Vivian, on having a conversation with yourself. You know, we, we're so busy in our lives today, in our working lives. We've got all of our emails, We've got our projects, we've got our work and, and family commitments that we're often on autopilot every day, right? We, 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 we do the things that we do every single day and we, and we often lose sight of what we need and, and that, you know, what makes us happy, what makes us productive. Uh, so taking a step back, as I mentioned before, but importantly, having that, that conversation or that inner dialogue will really allow us to, to find out what we need as an individual. So we're all unique individuals. We have the, you know, the habits or the keystone habits, let's say, that, that make us tick. 
we all have our own conception on, on our unique purpose and, and what makes us really passionate in life. So I think that inner dialogue will get us to, to being our best self. And that, and that can be simple things, right? That can just be journaling, for example, as many, you know, a, a technique that we often recommend with our coaching clients and on our programs, you know, journaling at the end of a day, having 10 minutes just to think on how your day went. Um, you know, maybe having a, a coaching relationship, maybe just having more of a dialogue with, with, with your spouse or your family and just taking a step back. I think that really will get us there in one respect, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I have a, a follow-up question. How can companies then help their employees or uh, employers help their employees to bring out the best in them? It, it's, it's, it's creating that, that supporting environment. Um, and it's a tricky balance because the work, the working environment is to, is to work, right? You know, um, and there has to be results. Um, but I think there has to be a realization that people are not machines. If, if they come with more of their humanity and more of their selves and their best selves, coming back to your question, then the company is going to be more successful as well. So that positive environment is, 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 has many different factors. It has uh, the physical environment. You know, if you look at even a lot of the, the trends in workspace design and biophilia, natural light, um, you know, I think they're not a very sterile environment that, that sucks, <laughs> sucks our humanity. Um, a supportive social environment. It's not a toxic culture where people, they, there's a community there that people care for one another. Um, that, that there's other options, of course, with things like nutrition and basic things like that. Uh, and that the work that they're doing has some meaning. It isn't just about squeezing people or, or a money-making machine, but there's some wider purpose for the organization. And I think people connect to that. So su- providing that supporting environment in all those different ways and, and others, I think is necessary for people to, to go on that journey themselves. So Stephen, this this next question, I think, overlaps a little bit, Vivian's question. And yet, on the other hand, I think um, there's, very, there's a strong likelihood you're going to be able to put a different twist on it. But what can organizations do to ensure people bring more of their authentic selves to work? Yeah, I mean, what, what, okay, what's the nuance there? Um, I mean, authenticity, uh, I, I think the big factor there is, is, is the culture, is a positive culture. Um, and is there an opportunity for people to, to have relationships at work, to, to have friendships at work? I think that, that's important. Um, you know, I, I've often talked to, to our clients um, about bringing more of your, your true self to work, right, and your authentic self. Because I think uh, in, in the past, there was a lot of formality within the workplace, and that could be manifested in different ways. It could be dress code or it could be um, whatever way or the lack of diversity, right? Maybe people thinking that, for example, uh, uh, I don't know, different uh, elements of that diversity, whether that be just um, more female leaders or, um, uh, you know, um, references and things like that, that people felt that they couldn't bring that into the workplace. And what often happens if there's more of a distance between who you really are at home and your workplace persona, that's very exhausting. You know, you're not gonna be the exact same person 
at home as you are in the workplace. But bringing more of your authentic self to the workplace is going to be you know, less tiring and it's going to allow you to contribute more to that workplace. So the company uh, can support that through those, so that, so that positive social environment um, and, uh, and allowing people to have friendships and just more tolerance, right? I think more tolerance for diversity and inclusion, which is, of course, a big trend in workplaces in, in recent years. And it's a very positive um, aspect of, of building that, the organization as a positive organization, as a positive culture. I think the key is, lies in that, in that area. Yeah, and I think going back to your hateful eight, what you're saying is allow some of that private personal life to enter into the eight hours of working life. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. for sure. Great. Coming back on the culture, um, what is your definition of a results-based culture and why should organizations strive for this? So, yeah, I mean, I, t I talk about that quite a lot. Um, I don't, you know, define it just as a, as a results-based culture. I mean, what I'm understanding from that, uh, Vivian, is that it doesn't, it's not necessarily about presenteeism. It's not about visibility, that you are, it's a meritocracy. You're measured on what you deliver rather than you pulling 10, 12 hours a day in, in the office, right? Um, but I think there's an extra element there also, and it links to one of the recent cases that we've done uh, with Santander, is that the way that you achieve those results is also important, right? I mean, you can't just say, okay, it's, it's, it's the results at the end of the day. So the Santander leadership that has been rolled out to the all 200,000 employees in the next couple of years is that uh, currently senior leaders are measured 50% on the results and 50% on how they achieve it. So is it done in a positive way that aligns with the behaviors which they have identified as part of their culture within Santander? So, you know, I think the key results-based culture is, is meritocracy, it's quality more than quantity. It's not necessarily about pulling those long hours and being in the workplace, but also in the positive sense, how do you achieve those results? Is it still in that modern conception of what a positive culture is? So, Stephen, then speaking about results, can you also share with our listeners about the, the, the ROI, the return on investment of creating a thriving workplace? Um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's the million dollar um, question, Mary Jane. I think, you know, I had a chapter on the ROI in, in the Chief Wellbeing Officer book um, and looking at how we need to measure differently. Um, and, and it results in... A, a way of looking at well-being within the workplace, um, which is very uh, defense-oriented. It's about absenteeism, measuring sickness, because those are things that are very easy to measure. The positive case is difficult to measure. It's, it is difficult to measure the positive impact or the positive ROI of all of these themes, health, well-being, thriving workplace, positive culture, and things like that. There, there are elements there. You know, we, we know that from discrete studies uh, that sleep for executive leaders supports decision-making. Uh, we know that if you have a purpose and a positive impact in the organization, that's going to attract talent. So all of these individual uh, streams exist. But in terms of an overall case, well, you know, looking at the positive impact 
of culture in this way, I, I'm not sure if we're quite there yet, but we're moving towards it. I think everyone inherently knows that it makes good business sense, but it's still hard to measure that, right? Okay. And I think that's why a lot of the ROI, uh, you know, as, as, as I said, looks at that kind of narrow level. And, and we need to move beyond there. We need a leap of faith to really go for those, those bigger um, aspects which allow well-being not just to be on the side. And can you also share any predictions about the future of organizational development? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Depends on the day, right? Monday morning, glass half empty. <laughs> Maybe it's not going to be so positive. You know, I, I'd like to think that because at the end of the day, look, you know, the whole quality, uh, quantity um, question is, is always going to be there. You know, you can pull a long week and you put to one side notions of health and well-being and positive culture and you can still kind of get results uh, and there's still a trend whereby young people will join an organization and they will do that 110 miles per hour for a couple of years because they can do it they'll either tick the box and get a big company and big assignments and non-stop work to the to the cost of life on their CV, or they'll get money in the bank and then they'll put their feet up and, 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 and enjoy life, right? I'd like to think that that's gonna be less and less. I, I hope that the talent of the future are gonna demand much more from the organization and they're not gonna necessarily squeeze their life out even only for a couple of years, that they're gonna demand that the organization, you know, they're not gonna be afraid of hard work or getting results, but they're not gonna accept that they can't live their life. Uh, and, and, and I hope that the, because the, you know, big companies, successful companies, shareholder driven companies, they need to attract this talent more and more, that I hope that that will make that change within, within cultures in the future. It's already happening at the moment. I mean, if you, if you look at the Netherlands, especially the, the people of my generation, uh, but also the millenniums, uh, millennials generation said, they are demanding that already. And uh, the, the thing that the organization are struggling in the Netherlands with is uh, keeping, not only attracting talent, but keeping a t talent within. Because if you invest in somebody for like about one or two years and that person leaves, it's, um, it's a loss on talent, but it's also a loss on knowledge. It's a loss on business. So thank you for addressing what you said earlier. Yeah. No, and even picking up on that, Vivian, um... You know, we, we did a case with SAP earlier this year and they were looking at the return on, so coming back to the previous question, right, they're looking at the, 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 the return on investment on well-being and they looked at it as an employee uh, journey experience or map. And this is for commercial sales. So what they're finding is that even having an experienced salesperson in post for one month more gave them a three and a half million uh, Euro increase in revenues. Wow. You're taking, okay. you're, you're taking someone in to the organization, you're having to train them, you're having to onboard them. The first year or 18 months, they're underperforming because they're learning the ropes. It's a very difficult time. 
And then what they're finding is that as soon as the people are highly skilled and they're getting to know what they're doing, then they leave. Right? Mm -hmm. The finding is that if they can improve the environment for these you know, experienced people, it's making such a difference to the bottom line, right? So absolutely, so an extra point on that ROI is there. The, the, the leaving talent aspect is very important because in this whole aspect of younger generations really thinking one life to live, let's, let's live it. I'm not going <laughs> to sacrifice everything for the, for the company or become a company man or woman, which has happened in previous generations. Part of that is looking for different experiences, right? So a company has to provide a stimulating intellectual environment for these people or they're going to leave. But even if that happens, maybe in, in international mobility, for example, as well, right? But even if they provide all these different things, maybe the, the talent just wants a different challenge, a different stretch, and they have to go to another organization. So another trend that I think I'm seeing now is that big companies and successful companies, when people leave, they're keeping a strong relationship with them and they're building a strong alumni network. So for example, McKinsey have been very good at that. So a lot of people will work in McKinsey, they'll leave, they'll found their own company because they have that restlessness uh, and then they, maybe they come back in, right? And I think a lot of companies are, are in that same respect. So it's not just the business schools that are looking at, or schools that are looking at a powerful alumni network, but I think a lot of leading organizations are trying to keep close with their talent and they may come back in in the future, right? So I think that's an important aspect. It's very important. And it's, it's funny how that you mention it because we are going to interview uh, March Blyleven. I would definitely connect with her. She's going to talk about why it is important to have communities, but also to take, to nurture communities. So it's a good thing that you address this. And, and Stephen, we have a question here, but, and I think it's been woven into every answer that you've given to all the other questions, but again, maybe you'll find uh, uh, something extra to say about it, but your vision for creating a sustainable, thriving workplace. I've heard so much in what you've shared, but is there more that you can share on that? So, yeah, I mean, different aspects um, that I mentioned before, you know, picking up on that from, from the physical environment to the, the social fabric uh, and the community aspect of, of the organization. Uh, I think what I would focus on in, in, in this specific question is the element of, of meaning uh, and stretch. You know, I think we are uh, happiest and uh, most fulfilled when we are using our talents at the limit, right? We're, we're really being stretched and we, and we see that those talents are being used in a, in a positive sense. Uh, and here, you know, you can refer to different frameworks, but maybe even, you know, the, the flow framework from Chiksen Mohai, which is about the, the flow channel, right? Is that you need to be fully using those talents to, to be happy. You know, a lot of the flow um, theory has, has been taken up in the performance level in the last few years, but a lot of that original intent from uh, Mihaly and his, his research team was looking at happiness, right. was looking at how, um, you know, we are more um, affluent as a society, we're living longer, but levels of happiness are as low as they've ever been, right? So he goes back to Aristotle and theories of happiness and, and come up with this flow framework. So I think having some element of stretch whereby, you know, we're not we don't have an easy ride every day because you're not going to be fulfilled by that either, but neither are you overly anxious because you're not sufficiently trained 
to address the challenges within the organization. So stretch on one side and meaning on the other, that you see that you're being stretched for something that is bigger than yourself. Uh, and I think that is a real, those two elements of that, that, that's the key aspects and then these other elements can come around about it. And I think that would really attract uh, and engage um, talent for, for the longer, longer, the long haul. Really important factors that you brought in to close off uh, this interview. Really important. Thank you. We have just one last question. Is there a question that you would like to ask us? I would just bounce it back to you. How do you see um, the future, right? Well-being at work. And, and I'm in this phase, it's, uh, you know, here in Barcelona, hot, hot for you guys as well as we talked about. <laughs> you know, summer is, is a time to kind of step back to an extent and to reflect. And I'm thinking a lot just now on what is coming up. What is the future of well-being at work? And, um, you know, there's, there's definite trends and, and several which we've talked about so far. But with your different conversations that both of you are having with your own community, I guess I would just flip that back to you. And how do you see the future? And is it the glass um, half full? Can you start, Mary Jane? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I see a really positive trend happening but it's not happening fast enough. And I think it does revolve around the, the two last factors that, that you just mentioned, in fact. It's about meaning, it's about uh, putting your talents to the best possible use. And if organizations can create and see and invest time and energy in getting to know their people and, and, and what their needs are, then, then I think that's going to help a great deal towards creating a thriving workplace. And the other thing that, that I, I want to mention here is I'm really getting into a point because in the Netherlands, when you talk about happiness at work, a lot of people here are, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, an oxymoron, you know, it, they just don't go hand in hand. And I have a feeling Stephen, that it's because we still associate and it's, we surrounded, we're surrounded by this hedonistic idea of happiness, that you know, work is a place where we're going to be jumping for joy uh, every time somebody does something well or whatever. But it is about the meaning and purpose of what you're doing and, that, and the flow that Michael, uh, you, who you mentioned earlier, this researcher in positive psychology, the finding that flow and that is the happiness at work great thank you and for for myself it will mean a lot for the next generation also the current generation if organizations uh embrace an energetic work environment because that will be uh, a deal breaker or a maker if the talents that they ha already have in-house are energetic are are being ambassadors for their own company without even that no, knowing that. And also having that flexibility, being flexible at work, being able to choose where you want to work, having plans, having biophilia at the workplace, being able to sleep, because that's also something that uh, people um, really found strange that why, why should I nap at the workplace? But then again, there are so many, uh, there are so many uh, research has been done that sleeping at the workplace or napping at the workplace has its own benefits for creativity, for uh, productivity. 
So that's where I see it going. And um, there's definitely a shift going on. But like Mary Jane said, it's not happening soon enough. So I hope that the current generation, also the next generation, are putting their foot down and saying, hey, this is not a company that I want to work for. And then the organization has to make a change. They are obliged to make a change because otherwise they won't become competitive. They won't grow and they, they might end up losing a client because of this. Thank you, Stephen, for sharing so many ways, inspiring ways for employees and leaders who can begin to create a thriving human workplace. And to our listeners, if you have any questions and comments about this episode, share them with us on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening. And until the next time. Bye. Bye. Go to Thrive Podcasts. Empower people to be happy before, during, and after work.